So a listener emailed me and told me about how her therapist had touched her in several sessions and how this made her feel uncomfortable. So she terminated the therapy with that therapist. And Paulette and I made a patron-exclusive episode about that email and about touching in therapy in general. That episode is called A Therapist Kisses a Client. A Therapist Kisses His Client. Sorry, A Therapist Kisses His Client. Later, the woman who emailed us, she contacted me and hired me as a consultant for this situation. She wanted consultation regarding her rights as a client she wanted to know if she should take action against this therapist. So I reviewed her documentation of the event, and I reviewed the session notes that the therapist wrote. I reviewed the therapist's disclosure statement and his website, and I read the prevailing literature regarding the ethics on touching and therapy, and I provided her my opinion. And after she consulted with me, she gave me permission to talk about it on the podcast because she wants to help other women who have been abused by their male therapists. And so today, this episode, I'm going to dive into the documentation from the client, the documentation that the client gave me, the documentation of the therapist because the client, the, the listener of the, of the podcast sent me the therapist's uh, case notes. And I'll provide the ethical guidelines that guide us in these situations and the laws. And I'll provide my opinion as to whether or not the therapist act, act, uh, acted unethically or not. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University Seattle, and I'm also a licensed therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening listening to this and you're not a patron yet of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Patrons get access to all the premium, premium episodes on their phones or on the Patreon page. When you become a patron, we'll send you the instructions on how to access the exclusive episodes. And remember that 20% of your pledge goes towards various different charities that we support. If you haven't become a patron yet, please do so. There's been kind of a lag in new patrons. So if you've yet to become a patron, do so now. Become one of us. Become one of us. Okay, welcome to the Patron Zone. Thank you for becoming a patron. We love you so much. Throughout this episode, I'm going to delete or alter details so the identities of the client and the therapist are not revealed. And it should be noted that all the documentation came from the client. I didn't get any uh, direct documentation from the therapist other than his website and his disclosure statement. And I'm not going to be revealing his name or any identifying information on him. Because it's not the purpose of the podcast isn't to out anybody or to you know target any particular people. It's to spread the word regarding this sort of thing and people's rights and also to guide therapists. Okay, so let me provide a summary of the sessions. I read the session notes from the therapist, which is interesting to read another therapist's notes, and also the account session to session from the client herself. So she starts off by saying she went to therapy because she was going through a hard patch. She had a significant setback in her career, and she went through a difficult breakup. So she was seeking therapy for that. 
So a summary of the first few sessions, according to her account, she began to feel as though he really cared about her. She really liked him as a therapist. He made her feel better by telling her nice things about her personality, saying that she was smart and that she was resilient, this kind of stuff. He also said that she was very sensual. In the first session, according to her, he said that she was very sensual. She said she got a flirtatious vibe from him right away, but she couldn't identify any particular behaviors, and she thought maybe it was just her and that she, you know, she was making all that up in her, in her head. In, in his session notes, there are some details about her presenting problems and about some nonspecific impressions that he had about her. There's no formal assessment and no formal treatment plan, but it could be argued that since she's private pay and not using any insurance, there's no need for a diagnosis or a treatment plan. But, but given uh, the way this therapy goes, a treatment plan would have helped him. It would have helped him guide his treatment, which didn't seem to have any clear direction, and it would have helped him defend himself at the end of all this. So in his session notes, he detailed some of what she said in session about her breakup and her childhood. Nothing about him telling her that she, that she was very sensual. So he, even though, according to her, he called her sensual, he didn't mention that in his notes, which I would say you should do. If, you, if you're using words like that, uh, you should be indicating in your notes that you said it and why, but there's no indication of that. Also in his notes in the first few sessions, he he wrote that she had a difficult time accepting how attractive she was to men. So he indicates that in the first, first few sessions. He's saying basically that it's a problem that she can't accept how attractive she is to men. So it seems to confirm that he was telling her a lot of compliments regarding her uh, attractiveness. He wrote that he moved toward her to offer physical comfort by holding her while she cried. So he didn't mention that. He wrote that they talked about whether or not she was okay with the touching. He wrote that she said the touching was helpful. He also wrote that she said she knew how to say no to the touching, but there was no affirmative consent and no mention of a, a consent form or anything like that. There was no mention of, we, we had a long talk about consent and the client consented and the client understood why. And it, it, there's, noth there's nothing formal like that. It's, it's written very informally without being mindful of what it would look like if this file was pulled, if that makes any sense. So there, there's, there's kind of oblique statements, essentially, around uh, discussions of consent without any firm statement as to her providing consent and understanding why it was happening in session and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so after the first few sessions, the, the next set of sessions, according to her account, she said that he continued to tell her that she was very sensual. She wrote... Also, that he sat on the floor in front of her and rubbed her feet. So things are escalating in terms of touching. In his notes, he again wrote about the content of what she wanted support for, which was mainly her recent breakup. He also wrote that he touched her over a number of sessions. He wrote that he held her hand and he touched her arms and he touched her legs. He also wrote that he held her 
but he didn't go into detail regarding how he held her or, or why he held her or if she consented to the holding or if he had any clinical justification for the holding. But he did mention it in his notes that he touched her arms, touched her legs, held her hand, and, and held her, but didn't go into detail as to what that exactly meant. She goes into more detail by saying that when he held her, he would, they basically would lay down on the couch together and he would wrap his arms around her and his legs, by the way. He wrote that she, she indicated in his, in his notes, he wrote that she indicated that she had been sexually abused by a trusted older man when she was a child. He also wrote that he wondered if her sadness was a way of asking him to hold her. And he also wrote that he told her that she was beautiful. So he did mention that he was giving her compliments about the way that she looked. He did know that she had been sexually abused and he, he muses or wonders if her sadness and her grief is, a, is, a, is her way of asking for him to touch her, which, you know, is fine if that's, you know, what you're thinking. But it's one of the only statements as to what guides him regarding the touching is just wondering without asking her, without research without any consultation. He's just like, I wonder if her being sad means that she wants me to cuddle with her. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's not enough in, in, in your documentation or in your clinical actions to justify what he did. Anyway. Okay. So after a couple months of therapy, she said that he again was telling her how sensual and, and how attractive she was. She, she wrote that he said she looked particularly good uh, at times. You know, he would say, oh, you look particularly attractive today. She also wrote that he sat on the floor again, rubbing her legs, and then he would hold her while laying on the couch with her. She said she disengaged from the hug at one point in one session and because for some reason she just didn't want to do it anymore. And later, he hugged her again, surrounding her with his arms and his legs. So it seems to be saying that at some point, she, she, wanted to, she just didn't feel like it was right and wanted to disengage. And without consent or without any discussion, he uh, again hugged her and surrounding her with his arms and legs. And again, uh, mentioning how attractive she is, telling her that she's very sexy he also said that he was crazy about her. Okay, so that's interesting. He said she was different from all of her, all of his other clients. She was different from all of his other clients. Now, in the same time, this, so this is what she's writing. In, this, in his notes, uh, at the same time, he wrote that she was drawn to his touch. So without, again, any, any convincing statement as to why he's even saying that, he, he's saying... She's very drawn to my touch, he would say. He wrote that he hoped the touching was helpful for her. So this is the first comment of any sort of treatment plan, even though it's not really a treatment plan. It, there's some indication in his notes as to why he is touching her so much, why he's cuddling with her. Because he's, he, and he doesn't even say anything more than that. He just says basically, like, I hope that the touching is helping her. But he doesn't say in what way or to address, you know, what particular goal or anything like that. And uh, that's a problem. And incidentally, I see a lot of therapists 
with notes like this. And it's probably okay if you're not cuddling with your clients because the chance that your file will even be pulled is pretty slim. But when it comes to this sort of thing, you need, you need more documentation regarding what you're doing. Okay, so now we're in the final session. In the final session, according to her, she said she came into the session feeling uncomfortable about the therapy and about the touching. She tried to keep her distance from him by, by you know, just being a different, trying to give nonverbal cues that she didn't want to cuddle. Because at this point, they haven't had seemingly very robust conversations about the consent to touch. And so she doesn't feel capable or given, she doesn't feel like she has the permission and the space to voice her opinion about it. So that's a, that's a big red flag. If, if you're engaged, if as a client, if the client is engaged in a lot of touching and the client doesn't feel comfortable telling the therapist, I don't want to touch today, then that's a huge red flag as to what's happening in terms of the therapist not doing their due diligence to uh, help the client with their autonomy in, in, in session. Okay, she, she said she tried to keep her distance and without consent, without asking for consent, he hugged her again, surrounding her body with his arms and his legs. He said, according to her, he said that love and desire had always been intertwined in his life. So there they are cuddling and he's saying love and desire, I'm guessing sexual desire, have always been intertwined in my life. He also said he was tempted by her. He said that under different circumstances, he would chase her. He held her while he's holding her with his arms and legs, and he's caressing her back and her hip. Okay, that's her hip as, you know, she says it. He is telling her that she's beautiful. He's telling her that she has a sexy body. He described what he liked about her body and her face. He said he had a hard time letting go of her. He said it would be very easy for them to break the boundaries of the therapeutic relationship. So that's her account. Now, in his notes, he wrote about what they talked about in the session, which was her recent breakup and her childhood relationships. He also wrote that they talked about touching in sessions. So he, he did indicate that they talked about touching, even though she didn't uh, write that in her account. He said they talked about safety which, again, she didn't indicate that they did. He wrote that he told her that he felt joy when he touched her. He wrote that he told her that he was primarily concerned with whether or not the touch was helping her. So it's, you know, it's somewhat of a good thing that he's having conversations with her about whether or not the touch is helping her. He also wrote that she was not sure if she wanted to stop the touching or not. So that's interesting, right? So she she wasn't sure if she wanted to stop the touching, which indicates that she's not sure if she wants to continue the touching. So it's not it's it's an ambivalent consent even in his notes. He's saying he's admitting in his notes that she wasn't 100% on board with the touching, which, you know, doesn't make him look good. He wrote that he held her in the session. He wrote that she felt numb at one point while he was holding her. So they stopped touching, which was good. She, you know, they're, he's cuddling her, and she says, I feel numb. And that, uh, that indicated to him that something was wrong, so he stopped touching her. 
And then a little later in the session, without any justification, he said he began holding her again. And again, she indicated to him that, that she felt numb, and this concerned him. Okay, so uh, yes, it should definitely concern you if you're doing something to your client and they're dissociating, and then without asking for consent, you just do it again. Okay. So then in both of their accounts, so that's, so that's the final session. Then in both of their accounts, they talked about an email exchange and a phone, some phone calls between them. In his notes, he wrote that she emailed him and she indicated she wanted to terminate treatment. He replied by telling her that he was, star- that he was sorry for misjudging how much touch would be helpful for her. So he right away apologizes for his use of touch and for misjudging uh, whether or not touching would help her. But he doesn't really explicitly admit or take responsibility for, for what's happening. He just says, I'm sorry for misjudging how, how much touch uh, would be helpful or not to you. In her account, she said she emailed him the termination email, and then within three minutes he called her immediately and asked her to not terminate, and he begged her to schedule a session so they could talk about the termination. In his notes, he wrote that she became very angry with him on the phone. When she talked to me, on the, so when she, you know, she hired me as a consultant, when she talked to me, she said she terminated because she was worried that they would have sex. She was getting a lot of signals from him that he was wanting to have sex with her, and she didn't know if she could control herself, but she didn't think that that was very healthy for her, so she terminated before that could happen. In his notes, he wrote that he consulted with a number of colleagues, you know, three-plus colleagues, and all of them told him that he should have used a consent-to-touch form. So it's a form in, that provides uh, explanations and guidelines for touch and therapy, and different therapists have different forms that they will create for this, and it's, it's called a consent-to-touch form. And all of his colleagues were saying, hey, you should have had her sign a consent-to-touch form. But that's all that he didn't write very much about it, but that's all he was saying. So when I talked to her on the phone, I wanted to clarify some things because I wasn't sure if she had left something out. So I asked her, did she ever give consent for the touching? And she said, no, I never gave consent for the touching which tells you something because in his notes he kind of alludes to, yeah, we talked about it, but again, he never says she gave affirmative consent to the touching. He, he never says that. He kind of gives the impression that, like, well, maybe, you know, but I asked her flat out. She said, no, I never gave consent for any touching, never gave any verbal consent. She might have given like passive consent, meaning she didn't say no or, you know, she didn't push him away, but she never gave verbal or written affirmative consent to touch, which is critical when you're doing this kind of therapy. Then I asked her, did the therapist, did he ever ask for consent? And she said, no, he never explicitly asked for consent. He never said, do I have your consent? He never, he was never straightforward. He would ask in, or he would bid in these very oblique ways like saying, I'm going to touch you, or I don't know. You know I, I don't know what he did, but you heard in his notes there wasn't explicit conversations about whether or not 
she was giving consent. It sounds like they talked about the touching, but he never explicitly asked her for consent, and she never gave it. I also asked her, did you sign any disclosure statements or any other forms that had anything to do with touching? And she said no. In fact, she told me that she didn't sign one single form. She didn't even sign a a consent to treatment or a disclosure statement form. She didn't sign a single form. She said that they got uh, sort of mixed up in the beginning and they were going to do it later and then they never got around to it. So he he didn't even have her sign a disclosure statement. <laughs> and if you're a therapist out there, you are cringing at this point because, my God, right? So I went back to his documents and, again, no discussion of touch in his disclosure statement. So I got his disclosure statement from his website and there's there's no discussion of touch in his disclosure statement. There's no discussion of touch on his website or any other document. I found out that he's a doctoral level therapist and he's licensed in his state. So he's qualified to practice in his in his area. Okay, so that is a summary of the sessions. I hope it is uh, understandable. Now let's go into the literature. Let's go into the established literature that is related to this topic. The first thing I want to talk about in the literature is what is called the standard of care. This is a, an important topic to understand if you're a therapist. The standard of care, it's a, it's a legal term and an ethical term and a practice term. It's defined as the customary professional practice in the community. A standard of care describes the qualities of a particular practice in psychotherapy that a reasonable or average therapist follows. So again, the standard of care is, is what a reasonable or average therapist does in therapy. Another way of putting it is the standard of care is the, the treatment that a reasonably prudent therapist would use in similar circumstances. So a reasonably prudent therapist in similar circumstances, what, what, would, what would you know the average therapist do in this situation? It's sort of a weird definition of standard of care, but it's a guideline, okay? And it should be noted that the standard of care does not imply perfect treatment. So in other words, the standard of care may not work well all the time. Just because something didn't work well or didn't work in an ideal way, that doesn't mean that it's not the standard of care. So the standard of care is, is not perfect. It's just what, what average therapists would do given similar circumstances. The standard of care is based on the following things. It's based on the law, including legislation law, case law, and also the licensing board that, that admin, regulates the laws regarding licensing. Standard of care is also based on the code of ethics in addition to the law. And it's also based on professional consensus. So the law, legislation, case law, licensing board regulations, the code of ethics, and also professional consensus. So what is the standard of care regarding touch in therapy? What's the standard of care? What does the average therapist do regarding touch? Even though most therapists touch their patients on occasion like a brief hug or a handshake, most therapists have never received training or supervision regarding the use of touch in therapy. You know, how to use touch, when it's harmful, what are the standards of care? So 
So when, when I ask people or when I'm posed with a question, what's the standard of care regarding touch in therapy, I have to say it's unknown to a lot of therapists. A lot of therapists have no idea because they've never been taught. So the main question when we're trying to figure out the standard of care regarding using touch in therapy is what would an average therapist who uses a similar theoretical approach working with a similar type of client, working in a similar context and culture, what would that average therapist say about your conduct? So again, you know, what would the average therapist say about what you're doing? A therapist that uses a similar theoretical approach, uh, working with a similar type of client and working in a similar context and culture, what would, that, what would that average therapist say about what you're doing? This is the main question that guides a standard of care regarding using touch and therapy. But it's perhaps more complicated than that because what is the average therapist? You know, It's hard to know what the average therapist is. There are many different views regarding using touch and therapy. Some consider it 100% unethical all the time, and some use touch all the time. So what is the average therapist? So it's a, it's a little difficult to answer that question. So we have to look further into this topic. So the first thing is is that we must always, when we're talking about ethics and this kind of stuff and actions and therapy, we have to define the concerns because when I, when I pose things like this to trainees or, frankly, other therapists that have experience, the, the kinds of responses I will get is, well, it's just wrong to, to do bad things in therapy. You, you can't do that. You know, if I, if I said something like, uh, well, what's, you know, what, do you have a comment on this therapist that is hugging his client uh, all the time? You know, what do you have to say about that? A lot of people, a lot of therapists will say, well, you, that's unethical. And I'll say, well, why? And they'll say, well, it, it's just wrong. And I'll say, well, why? And they'll say, well, you're not supposed to do that. And I'll say, why? What, what's the purpose? You know, why are you saying that it's wrong? There's, there are reasons why it, it's a concern, but you, you have to be able to articulate that as a guide. Otherwise, you're basically just following a rule that you've been told rather than understanding the reason behind the rule. You know, if I ask you, why do you stop at a stop sign? Hopefully, you don't say, well, because it's, it's the law. And when I said, well, what's the real reason for the law? Why, why is there a reason for stopping at the stop sign? If you just continue to say, well, that's the law, that's, that's you know, I, get, I would get in trouble if I didn't. That, to me, is a problem. You should, you should know why, and everyone knows why you stop at a stop sign. But when it comes to rules and therapy, a lot of therapists don't really know, and it's not the therapist's fault. It's because we don't talk about it enough. We don't take it to that next level. And have, and have justifications for why we have these concerns. So the concerns for touching in therapy is that therapists may use their power to sexually exploit their clients. This can happen. And so that's why we want to look closely at touch whenever it's happening. Also, clients may misinterpret the touch as a sexual overture or as an indication that you're a friend or that you're not a therapist or that you're trying to abuse them, that you're, you're trying to rape them. They, they might misinterpret the reason why you're touching them and therefore the treatment would get harmed, the relationship would be harmed, the client would be harmed. Also, it's a concern that clients may be harmed by the touching. 
For instance, in, in the client we've been talking about, if you've been sexually abused by someone in power over you, someone that you were supposed to trust as a child, and now you have a therapist who is you know, also someone you're supposed to be able to trust and also someone you're close to, and they, and, you know, there's all this touching going on, the, the client might be harmed in a very real way. Their PTSD might get triggered. Their dissociation might get triggered. They might have wounds that open up for them too quickly. Uh, and I'm, that's just one example. There's, there's a myriad of ways in which touching can, can, in a very real way, harm a client. Uh, another concern is that touching between therapist and client, particularly the kind that I was talking about earlier between this real case, is that it may lead to a sexual relationship, and that would be a bad thing for everybody. Not only would it uh, in all likelihood harm the client, it's uh, the statistically, it's something, I don't know, so 80, 90% of the time it harms the client in some way. But uh, not only would that harm the client, but it would harm the therapist. I'm sure it wouldn't be easy for the therapist, and the therapist could ruin their, it could ruin their career, right? Also, another concern is that, and this is to some extent a selfish thing, is that it makes the rest of us therapists look like charlatans and douchebags. When, when male therapists do this sort of thing, it reflects bad on me as another male therapist. And I have to tell you the truth, it, it just bugs me. When, when men act like douchebags, it gets associated with me. And so I'm, to all men out, just stop it. Stop being douchebags, and then people won't prejudge us as douchebags. How about that? Okay, now let's talk about culture. We've talked about concerns. Let's talk about our culture a little bit, because it needs to be mentioned that this is all within a massive cultural context regarding sex and, and therapy and all this stuff. In our society, there is a massive taboo regarding touching, particularly in America. Many in the field, uh, in our field of psychotherapy, many in the field pathologize all touching because they're not used to it or they don't know about the therapies that use it effectively. They think all touching is sexual, which is a bunch of puritanical crap, right? So there are many therapists that when they're evaluating other people and they're touching, they'll just say, oh, it's all bad because they just have a puritanical view around touching or they don't, they're not aware of the therapeutic value of touching in therapies that involve touching. Also, there's a taboo in our culture regarding people of the opposite gender touching each other because we sexualize everything. If a man and a woman hug, it must be sexual or it must uh, lead to sex because we believe that all men and women touching uh, activity will result in sexual activity. And this is ridiculous, of course. You know, whatever gender you are, whether, you know, cis male, cis female, cis trans male, or cis trans, trans male, trans female, or something, you know, queer, a, a, a gender. Uh, fluid, whatever you want to identify with, imagine you yourself were to hug someone that isn't your gender. Does that automatically mean you want to have sex with that person? No. The answer is no. In fact, the vast majority of times that you are hugging someone, you are not even thinking about sex. Now, you might be. You know, There's nothing wrong with thinking about sex, but the vast majority of, of touching that goes on in our lives has nothing to do with sex. It has to do with human connection and affection and has nothing to do with, you know, boners and vaginas. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and it also could be argued that our taboo regarding touching leads to people never touching anyone, which leads to people being deprived of the human need to be touched, which leads to people acting out in harmful ways regarding touch, such as being creepy about touching, which reinforces the notion that touching is bad and the taboo of not touching anyone is upheld. So it could be argued that our taboo about about not touching leads to creepy behavior in people because they're they're so starving for any kind of touching, and then that loops back in to reinforce the taboo of of no touching. Anyway, so so we just need to point that out that in our culture that's the context, and in other cultures they would look at the touching that happens in therapy and not think that much of it. So we just have to always know that of the context we're in. Also, it should be pointed out, in addition to culture, that touch is an important part of human development. Research shows that Americans are some of the least touched people on the planet, and this is a problem. So we need to really recognize that touch is important to human development. It communicates things that can't be communicated in other ways. When people are suffering, we comfort them with touch by hugging or holding them, and this actually is, is very psychologically and physically helpful to the people. Uh, when we celebrate, we hug. Just look at sports games, you know. Look at sports activities or when you're playing cards and you win or something. I was playing uh, Quiplash. Have you played this game, Quip, Quip, Quiplash, on the, on the Xbox? It's hilarious. And whenever, you know, someone wins, we high-five, and it's, it's a blast. We want to touch other human beings. We, we want that physical connection, and touch is important to us. And even though there's a ton of empirical evidence that shows us that touch can be used effectively in therapy, it's usually shunned or avoided in our field, probably because of our cultural taboo. All right. So now let me talk about the common practices with therapists who regularly use touch in therapy. So among those therapists that use touch in therapy, what are the common practices that they follow? When, when therapists choose not to use standard therapies, you know, they, when, when, when therapists choose to use touch in therapy, because that's not, that's not a common therapy to, to use this amount of touch in therapy, they must clearly document their clinical rationale and demonstrate consideration of different treatment options. So whenever you're using a fringe type of therapy, like, like using touch, you must doc, clearly document your clinical rationale, and you must also demonstrate that you considered other treatment options that are less risky. So uh, you need to document that, and you know, so we'll evaluate whether or not this therapist did that or not. You need to have clear disclosures in your disclosure statement that you are going to use this kind of therapy, or you might use it, and the research behind it. And your disclosure, your disclosure statement should, should talk in detail about what you do as a therapist and uh, your, your, in general, your clinical rationale for using that type of, type of therapy with some clients. If you're using one of the standard ones, like humanistic psychology, you know, Rogerian or something, you don't need to necessarily uh, document it all the time because it's such a standard practice that you don't need to document why you're using Rogerian uh, usually. 
Uh, another common practice for therapists to regularly use touch, they will have a signed written consent by the client to use touch in therapy. They'll have a consent to touch uh, form filled out. They will also have clear documentation that the client understands the use of touch, not just the signed form. This is very important for you therapists out there. Just because you have a signed form does not mean that that will hold up if a complaint is is waged against you. You need documentation in your notes saying that you talked about it, you talked about the form, and you 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 know talked about the consent process. Now it doesn't have to be word for word, but you know a sentence or two that you talked about consent, and the client seemed to understand what you're talking about and signed the form in good faith. Also, there should be a clear treatment plan, <clears throat> a clear treatment plan that involves the use of touch and the justification for using touch. So a, a clear treatment plan as to you know, how you're going to use touch and, and to what end. There should be clear documentation that the use of touch is clinically appropriate given the client's history, all the demographics, their age, their gender, sexual orientation, culture, presenting problem, and so on. So there should be documentation as to uh, the, that it's appropriate to use with this particular client given their background. You know, and if you're a male, older male therapist and your client is a younger female, then discussion around that in your notes needs to be clear as to uh, justification as to why you're moving forward given that you're in that context of an older male and a younger female. Also, there needs to be clear documentation of the touching in the session notes and again, and again, clear documentation of consent in the session notes. So in each session, there needs to be clear documentation that the, the client consented and there needs to be clear documentation as to what exactly happened and why you decided to do that and what the outcome was. Again, normally in therapy, we don't have to be that rigorous in our session notes. But when you're doing something like this, you need to be more rigorous. And maybe if you do this sort of therapy, maybe you charge a little bit more because you, your paperwork takes longer or you end the session earlier because you need more time to do your paperwork. I don't know. And finally, another common practice or a recommended practice of a therapist who regularly uses touch in therapy is that there needs to be clear documentation of the therapist's competence in using touch in therapy. Are, has the therapist been to trainings? Does the therapist have a certification to do it? Uh, has the therapist been educated in it? Has, does the therapist seek consultation or supervision regarding using touch? This all needs to be documented in the client file. Okay, just a, a little note here about therapists receiving pleasure. If, if in, the, in the account that I gave regarding the therapist and, and the client, it seemed as though the therapist was getting some pleasure from the touching. He even indicated that he was getting joy from, from it. And to some therapists, that they might be aghast at that. But it should be noted that therapists receiving pleasure from therapy does not necessarily indicate something unethical is happening. You know, for for example, for me, I, I don't touch clients uh, hardly at all. I'll, I'll if they want to hug, I'll you know do a brief hug or you know handshakes, this kind of stuff. But uh, but I'll, I might get as a therapist, I personally might get pleasure from 
a good laugh, you know, like I, I'm with a family and there's this, there's this humorous moment that happens and I get personal pleasure from that. And I look forward to meeting with that family because they're fun to talk to. Is it wrong that I get pleasure from that? No. I, should I end therapy or consider myself unethical for deriving some personal pleasure from being a therapist with a client? No. Uh, in fact, one could argue you should always be in, enjoying the, the situation. The the best, uh, I, the most ideal therapeutic situation is is one in which both the therapist and the client are getting something out of it. So just because the therapist in the uh, account above or the the account I told earlier was getting some pleasure doesn't necessarily mean it's unethical, but when we see it in the larger picture, it, it starts to paint a picture. So I'll get into, into more of that in a second. Okay. Now let's talk about the ethical codes. What, what do the ethical codes say about using touch in therapy? Well, in the uh, American psychological association, ethical codes and the American association of marriage and family therapy, ethical codes, and the uh, American Counseling Association Ethical Codes and the National Association of Social Workers Ethical Codes, none of those ethical codes prohibit the use of touch and therapy. So they don't talk much about touch and therapy, but they don't say you can't do it. So that's important to know. So again, APA, WAMFT, ACA, and NASW Ethical Codes they don't. They don't talk about it. I mean, they'll they'll talk about other things like don't harm your client, don't exploit your client, this kind of stuff, and client autonomy. But they don't talk directly about touch, and they don't say that you can't do it. Uh, they will talk about not having sex with their clients, right? But they don't say you can't touch them. But there are uh, organ- professional organizations that actually talk much more about touching. For instance, the U.S. Association of Body Psychotherapy. So this is a group of therapists that that use body therapies, and they have ethical guidelines that describe the use of touch in detail. And what do they say? Well, it says that therapists must get informed consent. They that therapists it's it's unethical if a therapist uses uh, touch in therapy without getting informed consent. That it's also unethical if the therapist does not consider culture. It's also unethical if the therapist does not get consultation. It's also unethical if the client, if the therapist does not keep clear records. It's also unethical if the if there isn't an established clear treatment plan. So again, informed consent, consider culture, get consultation, keep clear records and make a clear treatment plan regarding the use of touch. Also, uh, just so you know, of the different types of therapy that might use this ethical code, uh, the different kinds of therapists um, that, that are involved in what we, we would call broadly as body psychotherapy, uh, the list is the following, but not limited to, Biodynamic psychotherapy, bioenergetics, biosynthesis, Hakomi, Reikian, Rubenfeld, Synergy, and somatic experiencing. These are the different therapies that might use the ethical codes according to the U.S. Association of Body Psychotherapy. Okay, now let's talk about different levels of touching. What are the different levels? Because, you know, when we talk about touching, 
what are we talking about? What sort of behaviors and, and how, how might we, how might we categorize them? Well, the, I'm going to just provide my own categorization of different touching. There, there are others, but I don't like the others. This is, this is the one that feels good to me. So level one is the most minimal level, and the behaviors involved in level one, in my level one, are things like handshakes, or a brief hug as a greeting, or a goodbye, or even hand-holding to some extent, uh, if it's just real brief, or high fives, you know, like high-fiving your clients. Uh, these, these things are, you know, basic cultural rituals that are normal to human interactions. And they're often used in the average therapist's office. If you ask the average therapist, they would, if you ask them if they handshake or they give brief hugs at the client's initiation, most therapists say, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so, this is, so the, level one is something that I'll, most therapists engage in from time to time. And it's basically used to enhance the relationship. If a client wants to hug you and you say no, then that's a missed opportunity to enhance the relationship. And uh, so that's why uh, level one behaviors are, are used. You know, it could be used to greet clients. It could be used to help them relax or used to help reassure them. And uh, now regarding the documentation, uh, sometimes a, a brief note describing this should be in the clinical file and some uh, brief clinical rationale around it. Like you could say, client asked for a hug at the end of session. I uh, oblige the client by uh, giving a brief brief hug that was was not very. We are you know our bodies weren't very close to each other, and the reason why I oblige the client is I want to build the relationship, and uh, I also don't detect any. Uh, any inappropriateness on behalf of the client or anything, you know, you could, you could just say something like that. Now, having said that, I don't do that in my notes. Uh, I, I don't, I, I don't worry about those kinds of things. The, the reason why you would provide that rationale in your session notes is if you thought that there would be a lawsuit or some kind of complaint regarding that hug and you needed to somehow justify it. So that's not likely to happen. In fact, I've never heard of a case where, uh, that has happened. Has it happened, you know, at some point in history, you know, I don't know, maybe, but the chance that you're going to need some sort of rationale regarding obliging a client's uh, bid for a hug and it's just a brief hug, you know, the chance is pretty slim that you're going to need to back that up in your client. No, it's okay. So that's level one. Level two, the behaviors involved in level two that, that I've identified are things like longer hugs. So we're not just we're not just briefly hugging and saying goodbye. These are longer hugs. They're they're more meaningful, or light touching on the arm or back or shoulder. So these are these are things that are more warm. They're more uh, meaningful. You know, if you are with if you're at school and you're a student and someone wants to hug you and you barely know the person, then you do that kind of, I barely know you hug. But if you run into your sibling, your, your, you know, your twin brother or your best friend or your mom or your, your romantic partner, the hug is going to feel differently. I hope anyway. And it's longer. It's more meaningful. It's you're, you're pulling the person in longer and you're, you're, you're really holding on to them. Or 
you might put your hand on someone's back as a way of comforting them. And this sort of thing I think is, you know, it's a, it's similar to handshakes, but I think it's a next level up in my taxonomy here. I, I personally rarely use this level, but when I do, I find that it helps. I mainly use it with my male clients because there's less chance of confusion regarding my intention. I will put my hand on his back, perhaps as he leaves my office, as if to say, I'm with you, buddy, or I, I care about you. And I don't think about it before it happens. I just do it. There will be times where I'll have a, a moment with a client in session, and as I'm saying goodbye to them, it, I, I just feel this upwelling of a of a impulse to put my hand on their back and say, hey, I'll see you next week or something, instead of not putting my hand on their back. Other therapists will touch their clients while they're talking in session to comfort them. You know, maybe they'll sit next to them on the couch and hold their hand or put their arm around them to comfort them. Uh, I don't do that, but I know other therapists do. Okay, so that's level two. Now let's go on to level three. What are the behaviors involved in this one? Well, these are things like long hand-holding in session. These are, th- these are things like sitting closely right next to the client for a long time. Now, some might argue that this isn't necessarily more advanced touching than level two, according to my taxonomy. But to me, it is. I, I've had you know slightly longer hugs than brief hugs with clients when they want to hug me you know for a while. Um, I've also, as I said, put you know a light hand on the back to say, "Hey, I'm with you." I, I've never held a client's hand in session. I've never sat next to them on the couch and comforted them in that way. Now, I know a lot of therapists that do that, and and it's you know it's it's not out of the question. Uh, I would say the average therapist uh, has done that, but but I I haven't. Um, it, this sort of stuff might be used to help clients come down from a panic attack or to help a client reduce dissociation in session. It can be used as a corrective emotional experience for the client. Um, I've uh, Incidentally, regarding this sort of thing, I've heard of nightmares of therapists who try this, try this form of touch, and they completely creep out their clients. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. One, One of my friends came to me and said, so I, I, I'm not sure if I should terminate therapy or not with my therapist, you know, what do you think I should do? And she said that the male therapist came and sat next to her on the couch without asking her permission and held her hand or, you know, put her, put his arm around her or something. And she felt, she, she said she felt completely creeped out by it. And uh, he did a, a, you know, a number of times and every time he did it, she didn't like it and wished he didn't, he wouldn't do it. Because, you know, people are polite. They generally will just let things happen. And then she comes to me and she says, yeah, I, I don't know what to do. And, and I, I said, well, one, you have the right to tell him to fuck off <laughs> and to say, you know, and sometimes it's therapeutic to have that strength to be able to say something like that. But I also told her, look, if this is creeping you out, something's wrong here. This, you know, something's not wrong with you. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with the therapist in terms of, He's not able to intuit or have a conversation with you that would allow you to be able to say what you're telling me. And so something's wrong here. And she ended up terminating with him. So uh, there's a lot of, I've heard, I've heard a, a number of unfortunate, unfortunate stories like that. 
So before I go on to level four and five, I just want to jump in here and say that what I'm talking about mainly here are touching between adults, adult patients and adult clients. Well, what about teenagers? And what about kids? Well, generally speaking, I lump teenagers in with adults, but not always. But there's, there's kind of an overlap there. But with kids, it's, it's a completely different ball game. Uh, therapists are, are much more touchy with their kid clients. You know, your, your seven-year-olds, your 10-year-olds, your four-year-olds. And kid clients are much more likely to be touchy with their therapists. And there's a lot of inadvertent touching between therapists and kid clients because you're on the floor playing and you're interacting. And so touching is is much more common between kids and their therapists. I, I once had this young girl client. She was, I don't know, four or five or six. And she would wander around. I'd be talking with the mom and the kid would be wandering around the office and she would slowly start to uh, back, she'd start walking backwards. And she would meander through my office back and forth, but she'd be making a beeline for me. It, it was like she was a backing truck, you know, beep, beep. <laughs> and, and she would be backing up right into me. It was her way of trying to connect with me. She wanted to attach herself to me. And that was her way of doing it. And I could have pushed her away or said, you know, mom, get her to stop doing that. But I didn't. I intuited that it would be therapeutic for everyone, including the mom, for me and the child to have a connection. And one of the ways that all adults connect with kids is through touch. Now, if you work with kids you and you're effective and you have half a brain and half a limbic system and half an empathy center in your brain, you understand the line and it's, you can't really define it as a behavior. You just have to intuit what feels uh, quote unquote appropriate or helpful or exploitative or crossing the line. You'll, you'll know, you know, the, the girl that I'm, I'm talking about, she, I would, you know, I'm sitting up in my chair and she would she would back up right into my body and and be very very close to me and at the time i just thought that it it was okay and i let her be there for a while and uh i can't remember exactly i think she would just dis- she would she would do that and she would disengage and she'd do it and she'd disengage um if it lasted a long time i'm sure i would have thought okay this is getting a little lengthy in time, and I would have been gentle about redirecting her in, a, in some ways. And so I just want to point out, and so with that sort of touching that I did with that five-year-old client, I've never done with a teenager or an adult. Yet with kids, I apparently have a totally different policy because I, it's a different form of therapy, um, and uh, the, the, the context is different, right? Um, it's very common in our culture to be okay with, with touching uh, kids while you're playing with them and roughhousing with them. So I just want to point that out. Uh, okay, so I've done levels one, two, and three. Now let's do level four. What behaviors are in this, this level? Well, the behaviors are hugging for several minutes, like while you're on the couch, you're not just holding their hand, you're, you're actually like cuddling with them for a long time. Holding hands for a half an hour in the session. 
rubbing their back for several minutes. So it's different if you just put your hand on someone's back and rub it for half a second and then disengage. It's another thing if you're rubbing their back for a very long time. So this is level four. Now, why do therapists do this? Well, again, as I said with level level two and three, is it's used primarily as a corrective experience. Whether or not the therapist identifies it as that or even knows why they're doing it is, uh, I'm not quite sure, but the, the general uh, idea as to why you would do this in session is because it's therapeutic, it's corrective, it's healing, and so that's why people do it. Uh, I, as you can guess, I've never used this level as well. Uh, I, I personally don't know any therapists that do this sort of, uh, this level of, of touching. And uh, perhaps the listener's therapist, the one that you know I've been talking about here, is someone who does this sort of thing all the time. It's unknown, but I would guess that it's it's likely. Um, and uh, uh, but I have heard of situations where this sort of touch is very helpful for for clients. But again, you need to have all those consents and all that documentation and the training and the blah blah blah. Okay, and then. Level five or a, a separate category altogether that's not on the spectrum from one to four is the always problematic behaviors. For instance, sexual touch or violence or punishing your clients with physical you know, touching is always problematic. There's, there, I don't know what level to put that into, but I don't want to put a level five because that implies that level four is heading in that direction. I just want to make this a whole separate category called always problematic, you know, sexual violence and punishing. Okay. So now let's go into my analysis. What's the final word on this? Now, I want to say, first off, that one could make the argument that some of his touch was therapeutic and within the standards of those who use touch in therapy. So some of his touch could have been, could have been justified if he had a disclosure statement, all that kind of stuff. It, it could have fallen within the standard of care among those therapists that provide touch uh, of this kind in therapy. So... So he could have been he could have been in the safe zone. However, he should have had her sign his disclosure statement. That would have been good, right? But he didn't do that. The disclosure statement should have had disclosures regarding him using touch in therapy, and his disclosure statement should have had empirical studies that demonstrate the effectiveness of using touch in therapy. His his disclosure statement didn't have any of those things. His disclosure statement was actually very short and just had the extreme minimum of what should be on there. He should have had her sign a consent to touch form, right? Just as his colleagues told him he should have done. He should have had more explicit conversations with her about the consent to touch. He should have had her. Uh, he should have. A- he should have. He should have asked her to initiate the touch in a clear manner. Uh, in session, he should have given her that autonomy. He should have said, "Look, when you want to do it, uh, let me know, and uh, know that you're not under any pressure. But I want you to tell me when you're ready for that, and when you're ready, we'll have a conversation, and then we'll do it." Uh, so he should have he should have asked her to initiate it clearly, and then only participated in the, in the touch after she was very clear that that's what she wanted to do. He never did that. 
he should have consulted with his colleagues much earlier in, in the situation. He should have consulted with them perhaps before the treatment had even started, but uh, he did not. He should have documented in his notes a clear treatment plan and a clear justification for touching as a therapeutic tool. So there should have been a, a treatment plan. There should have been a, should have been a you know, this is what I'm treating, and I'm going to use touch in this way, and it's going to be, you know, over this span of time, and here's the outcome that I'm hoping for. He should have noticed that his apparent sexual attraction to her was happening, and he should have sought to manage that sexual attraction. So in his notes, he was, to some extent, uh, knowledgeable, and, and in her account, he was knowledgeable that he was becoming sexually attracted to her, and he he should have noticed this uh, obvious red flag. Uh, I don't. What's higher than a red flag? Purple flag? A black flag? He should have noticed this and and done something about it and sought to manage it. Sought com, you know consultation or or pulled back on the touching a little bit. But he he didn't. He just went full hog uh, into it. And as she said, I, she was thinking they were going to have sex in the next session and. You know, we will never know, but uh, it's certainly uh, there's evidence that it was headed in that direction. Again, I just want to remind you what uh, the circumstances were in that final session that they had here. Let's get back to my notes here. What were they saying? Um, she said in the final session that she came feeling uncomfortable and she didn't want to touch him. She tried to keep her distance. But without consent, he hugged her again, surrounding her body with his arms and legs. He said that love and desire had always been intertwined in his life. He said that he was tempted by her. He said that under different circumstances, he would chase her. And he caressed her back and her hip while he was engulfing her with his body. He told her she was beautiful. He told her she was sexy. She had a sexy body. He described what he liked about her body and what he liked about her face. He said he had a hard time letting go of her, and he said it was very easy for them to break the boundaries of the therapeutic relationship. So I just want to remind you of what was, what was occurring there. So he should have known that uh, there was something going on there, and he should have done something about it, and he, and he didn't. He should have known that touching a sexually traumatized client would be potentially harmful to her. He, he should have noticed that she was you know, seemingly dissociating during the touch, and he should have ceased the touching. Now, he did cease it once, but he started right back up with it without any conversation about whether or not she was ready or consenting or anything. So he should have, he should have known that, oh, well, she's been sexually abused by someone basically in my role as a as a caring, trusted, older male. And I need to be careful about triggering her PTSD here. He should have attended more trainings on this topic. I mean, maybe he did uh, attend a lot of trainings, but I'm guessing he didn't because of his lack of professionality. He has very little professionality when it comes to this sort of thing. And my guess is, is he had not been to a training or he hadn't been to a good training. And if you're going to use touch like this, you, sh- you need proper training because they would have told you to do all these things. He should not have kissed her legs. That is, that is completely beyond the pale. He should not have rubbed her hip. 
that's also there there's no justification for doing something like that. He should not have commented on how sexy she was. Why why are you commenting on how sexy she is? That's not I, I can't imagine a world in which that's helpful as a as a therapy to do, particularly in that context. He should not have told her that he was sexually and romantically attracted to her. Uh, again, I can't imagine why you would do that. My, my guess is in his mind, he thought he was helping her to feel better about herself, helping her to recover from her breakup, help, helping her to feel like an attractive person. But th- the road to that is not to... Ec- uh, you know, encourage your own attraction to a client and then express that. That's not, that's not the road. So uh, he shouldn't have done that. He, he should have known the cultural context of what he was doing. He, he's an older male, an older white privileged male, and she's a, a younger woman. And he should know that there's a cultural context in which this is playing out and he should be extra careful in that situation. Now, if he is an older female and he is uh, treating a younger female and, and both are heterosexual, then the touching is in that context and is is different than when you're dealing with a heterosexual female and she's younger and you're old, you know, it's just like you need to consider all that because the white privilege, the male privilege, the older person privilege, the therapist privilege, all of that can affect the situation in in a negative way so that the client doesn't feel as if she can uh, consent or not consent. So uh, that was never considered or didn't seem like it was. And and finally, this is really the the biggest one here. is he should have been more afraid of being sued. He clearly was unafraid of getting sued by this client. And he should have been afraid of being sued uh, by, this, by this client. As soon as you engage in this level of touching, he should have said, you know, if this came to light, there's a chance I'd get in trouble. Maybe I should consult. Maybe I should start looking at my forms. Maybe I should be more... Uh, buttoned down regarding my notes and about asking her for consent. Maybe I should do that. No, he just, he didn't seem to do any of that stuff. Okay. All right. So let's, let's talk about perhaps why he did all this stuff. You know, why, why did he do this? Why, why did he go down this, this obvious difficult road for him and his client? Well, of course, uh, it's completely unknown to me. I can only speculate. Maybe he was lonely at this time in his life. Maybe he's always been lonely. My opinion, based on the evidence before me, which, you know, is the evidence before me, I think there's a characterological issue going on here with the therapist. I mean, what therapist in their right mind would think this is ethical behavior for a therapist? What therapist would think it was ethical to kiss a client on the knees? What, what is going on? in your personality that makes you think that's okay? What makes, it, what makes you think it's okay to hug a client with both your arms and your legs wrapped around the client for several minutes while you tell her how sexually attractive she is and while rubbing her body? Who, what therapist thinks that that's okay? The only speculation I have is a characterological issue, a, a personality issue here. What therapist believes that it's okay that 
to, to not have any clinical rationale in your notes regarding this, to, to do this without any treatment plan and uh, without any signed disclosure statement. What therapist thinks that this is all okay? All of, you know, just to let you know, in case you don't, if you're not a therapist, all of my supervisees, and I'm guessing all of my colleagues, are paranoid to even allow their clients to give them a handshake. So I just want to repeat that. My supervisees will come to me and say, my client asked for a handshake at the end of session, and I said no, because that's inappropriate, right? The, the, the vast majority of therapists are, are paranoid about all sorts of things, including touching the, their clients. This guy is on the other complete end of the spectrum and it seems like he doesn't even give it a second thought. I mean, the other thing is, is what's wrong with this guy that he thought that this was going to end well for him? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, any rational therapist would say, you know, I'm really rolling the dice on this one. It's, you know, it's just really bizarre that, that he did these things. And I can't help but to think that he's been getting away with this for a while. I mean, the way he progressed over a very short amount of sessions, I think the total sessions they had was something like, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, 11 sessions. In a very short amount of time, he was, he was involved in some, in some pretty uh, interesting things very quickly. And so I have to think that this client isn't the only client he's done it with. And I have to think that he's been getting away with it because otherwise he wouldn't be doing it, right? Or he, would, you know, he wouldn't have his license. Now, along those lines, let's get into what she decided to do. Well, she decided to consult with me. She decided to consult with a lawyer as well. She decided to file a formal complaint, and she did. She filed a formal complaint with the state licensing board. She also filed a formal complaint with his professional organization. And she's been working with a website that supports women in situations like this. There's a website that advocates for victims of harmful touch in therapy. And she's been, she's been connected with them. And uh, her, her, her lawyer told her that she should not file a civil suit because the lawyer didn't think that she had a, a chance of winning. But, I had, I'm not a lawyer, so God knows, but I, I said, well, I think you should get a second opinion on that because given what he did in, as a therapist and uh, depending on what happens with the state licensing board and the professional organization, I think you would have grounds to say that damage has been done. I mean, she, how, you know, she told me that her trust in therapy is degraded, and that's, that's a harm. That's something that you can sue someone over her symptoms might get worse over time because of, of this. So, you know, it, it's, it's very possible that uh, harm has occurred, real, you know, harm. And, and, and it wouldn't, in my uh, estimation, again, I'm not a lawyer, so God knows, but in my estimation, I don't think it would be hard to prove that he was not following the standard of care and that he was employing harmful therapies without any... Uh, you know, checks and balances in his system, that he was negligent and self-serving in his uh, treatment and uh, reckless uh, with his treatment, and that resulted in an effect, a harmful effect for the 
client and the client deserves to be compensated for that. So that is what I can say. And what, what can I just sort of say as a final word on this? Um, well, one of the final words I'll say is that I could be talking completely out of my ass on all of this because I wasn't there and I'm basing all this on the client's account. I'm basing it also on the therapist's notes. But if the therapist were here, the therapist might say, oh, no, 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 you don't get it. The client is delusional or the client is blah, blah, blah and made up all these lies about what happened. Sure, I, I should have documented better. But I never engulfed her with my arms or my legs. And I never kissed her on the legs because that wasn't in his notes. So, you know, the, the, as, as a therapist who gets told a lot of stories, I always just say to myself, you know, there's a chance that it, I have no idea what really happened. So I just want to have that as a limitation to this discussion. Okay. The other last thing I'll say is she was sure to tell me something very interesting that when I was uh, talking with her on the phone, she was, you know, when I when she hired me as a consultant regarding this situation, she she told me something very interesting, and she would she really wanted me to know this. She told me that she still had feelings for him, that she still had warm, affectionate feelings for him, and she thought about him every day, and there was a part of her that wanted to return to his embrace, and there was a part of her that missed him greatly and felt a lot of grief regarding no longer being able to be with him anymore. There was another part of him that was very angry and hurt about what he had done. And, you know, that part of her felt abused. That part of her was angry. That part of her wanted to, to stop him from doing this to other people. But there was another part of her that was uh, quite affectionate towards him and, and missed him. And, I just want to point this out because it tells us that humans are much more complex than we might imagine. And situations like this are much more complex than we might imagine. And the long-term effects of this are much more complex than we might imagine. It would be easy to just categorize this as, you know, therapist or, or you know, client goes into therapy therapist does a bunch of weird stuff and client walks away going, that was terrible. You know, that can happen. But, uh, you know, when, when we know that she's still a part of her, still has affection for him and still misses him, we have a, a very nuanced story here. And I, in my opinion, we have another comment on the harm done to this client, that he did a form of therapy that made her become overly attached to her, to him in some ways and that the grief and the attachment that will sustain itself over time is yet another harm that will uh, that this client will have to endure over time it's it's a it's an interesting form of harm right that that she grieves the loss of him and that she wonders if she did the right thing because she still wants to be with him but in but me as an outsider, I'm looking at it like yes, that's that's absolutely a harmful thing that he did, because he, in some ways, you could say he either negligently or purposefully made her overly dependent on him, and that's actually a rare thing. I, I actually don't rail on that. A lot of you know outsiders to therapy will say, oh, 
therapists are, you know, they just make clients dependent on you and that's a bad thing. I, I actually will encourage clients to be somewhat dependent on me because I think that the, that dependency actually makes the relationship deeper, which increases the intensity of the corrective experiences. So I'm not against a deepening of the relationship, but I am against a deepening to this level where the client basically felt as though the therapist was a romantic partner. She didn't say that, but essentially that's the flavor of the relationship. That that was what he was setting up. I mean, just imagine you are with someone and you're cuddling with them for hours or, you know, total, you know, for, for, you know, tens of minutes. And they're telling you how wonderful you are and how, how attractive you are and how smart you are and how worthy you are and how, and, and your, and the therapist is also saying, I don't treat my other clients like this. I'm treating only you like this. You're a special person. You know, that's very seductive. That's, it makes, you know, we have, we all have this in us. We have a desire to be wanted and to be loved. And when someone gives us that amount of just unabashed love to us and affection for us, it's, it's hard not to become dependent on that. It's hard not to want that, you know, all the time. And therapists need to be mindful of that. They need to monitor that as time goes on. Again, a little bit of that I think is therapeutic. A lot of that can result in things like this. So I want to thank the listener for providing us with this uh, material. I think it has been fascinating to me. I can't believe that a therapist, uh, a, a licensed doctoral level therapist is out there doing stuff like this. It's just uh, just amazing to me. And um, uh, I want to thank the uh, listener for uh, advocating for victims of things like this. I think we all need to do something about this because as I've said in other podcasts, the vast majority of people who are victimized in this way do not report it. And that's, that is a, that's a problem. That's essentially like rape victims never reporting it. If someone mugged you on the street, if someone pushed you down and took your wallet, you wouldn't have any problem telling the cops because there's no stigma or at least there's not as much stigma about reporting that you've become a victim of a mugging. But being a victim of a sexual crime or being a victim of, a, of an unethical treatment from, from a therapist, there's apparently so much stigma around it that, so, that the victims won't, won't say anything. Or we tell clients that they don't have the power to do so. Or we, we tell them that they don't have the right to do so. And we need to change that. We need to empower clients to be able to do that. The, the ironic thing is the people who are the most likely able to advocate for uh, for clients is therapists so we as a group have to have to advocate for those clients that have been harmed and potentially that could lead to them complaining about us right that's the worry it's like well why would i encourage clients to complain more if they complain about me then i'm in trouble well what I'll say to that is that as long as you're within the standard of care, then you're in all likelihood, you're fine. And if someone made a complaint about you, you know, nothing would happen to you because uh, it would be found that you're within the standard of care. How do you stay within the standard of care? Well, you get supervision, you get consultation. You, when, when you start stepping outside of your 
zone of competence, you you rein it in and you talk to someone. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's research, I don't have it in front of me, that says that therapists who are isolated are the primary, uh, they're, they're the most at risk of doing unethical things and getting in trouble. So, you know, you need to reach out. Listen to this podcast more. Reach out to me. Reach out to other therapists around you. Stay centered. Stay educated. Stay up to date. That's the advice. Okay. Well, that does it for this episode. I've enjoyed it. Let me know what you think. This is uh, the end of the episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there, patrons. We love you so much. Take care of yourself and take care of other people and take care of clients who have been abused in this way because we all deserve it, right?